סרק עם מאו חיי אב גוילט סון קארלט ובחיי נום לא ולט אאו Welcome to Con Larry, the podcast about constructive languages and the people who create them. I'm George Corley. With me down the road a ways is William Annis. Hello. Uh, and uh, we don't have Mike today. He bowed out. Uh, hopefully he will return for the next one. And uh, so people will have noticed that there was no Con Larry that last month because I got married. Congratulations. <laughs> so... That, w- that, uh, that took up a good chunk of my time, and I wasn't able to uh, arrange for a recording. And, um, George, George, I don't yeah. think you need to apologize for not doing a show, because you were getting married. Yes, I was getting married, and I was move it, moving and all sorts of things. Yes. Uh, so need to apologize. I'm just letting people know what happened. So, you know, today we're going to do a mailbag episode, because I'm... I'm still pretty busy with things, and uh, we just hadn't gotten around to doing research for the next episode. I have here a few emails. Uh, we're catching up a little bit on our emails, but we still are, uh, or we will be caught up a little bit with our emails, but we still have some sitting in the inbox. Um, uh, we'd love to get your you guys' emails, but realize that it may be... months or I think some of these are from last year yeah before we actually talk about them unfortunately because uh, that's just uh, an issue with you know the amount of email we get versus what we want to do with um, when we answer them so anyway if we just want to start we got an email from Cordell that that's what they gave me IPA for so Cordell or Cordell And uh, this is, I'm not going to read all of your email, but uh, read the whole thing on the show because it's quite long. But he pointed out a couple of things. First was, he said, I was excited when I saw number 50, the technology of literacy. But I was expecting something much closer to what I heard in 66, cognitive metaphors, basically saying... Uh, He's talking about, so we talked about in that episode, things like media and writing materials, writing implements, but he's actually talking about how writing technology affected metaphors. And he re- recommends a, uh, a, this is a book? Paper. Morality and liter- Literacy? It's a paper. Okay, it's a paper. It's on JSTOR, so I, yeah. So... He's just recommending this as sort of an idea of, you know, he mentions for a print-based cognitive metaphor, consider in linguistics the term left edge, which refers to, like, the beginning of a phrase or a sentence or something. Right, a term invented by people whose writing system goes from left to right. Right, that is correct. I'm always curious when I think about um, the way linguists use left and right whether Arabic or Israeli linguists do the opposite 
Mm-hmm. I have no idea. In in their own languages, that would be an interesting <clears throat> thing. Or the top and the bottom edge, if you're have a you know a, a Mongol linguistics tradition. <laughs> that would be interesting. I'm sure that like, well, I don't know. I'd have to look at Chinese linguistics papers, but I assume they would just use left edge and right edge because almost all modern written material in Chinese follows the the standard left to right horizontal lines. But at the same time, we also use phrases like fronting, mm-hmm. which front just means the start. doesn't matter which direction you're going. It just means the starting part. So the front edge and backside probably, well, maybe backside's not great as a linguistics term, but <laughs> um, yeah. But I mean, and the thing is, like, that's a very specialized term that is used in an academic context where, you know, everyone is presumably literate and everyone, well, I mean, literacy is widespread anyway, nowadays anyway, but people are thinking a whole lot more with writing in that context than they would necessarily maybe in another place. But anyway, um, it is, a, I mean, anything can be turned into meta- a metaphor. So that's not terribly surprising that writing affects what kind of metaphors we use. And the second thing that I highlighted, he was talking about why do Romans speak received pronunciation? The, Mainly British. Yeah, British English. And he's 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 blaming Shakespeare because people perform Shakespeare's, you know, stories that are set in Rome and Egypt in British English for reasonable reasons. Uh, but um, I don't know if that's the whole story. It's, I mean, it's definitely something that's, that's connected to like a fantasy genre or certain types of historical genres. Yeah. It's a, it's a curious thing to me to think, think about the history of this because to the average non upper class, non traveling person through much of the history of the United States would have no idea what a real British accent would sound like. Yeah, that's true. So something about the people first making movies and radio plays led them to start calling on British pronunciations to communicate a particular kind of message. Yeah. And it's not necessarily all things that are set in like a foreign historical place necessarily that are going to do this because like uh, I was thinking about this and I thought about Disney fairy tales and although they sort of don't mention where any of them are set, like a lot of times, like we had Frozen, there's lots of American accents in Frozen, but it's set in, but it's presumably set in sort of fairy tale Sweden. Right. Um, and that's, that's the thing with all, I think all of the Disney animated things, you have stories that are set in France or in Denmark or stuff, but they use American accents for all of those, unless it's something that's set in Britain. Uh, so. I think it's mainly just something that got associated with a genre, with certain genres, and sort of stuck that way. Yeah. Anyway. What was that? I was thinking about something in science fiction where it makes no sense, but it's just a sim- it's just a signifier of, hey, this is science fiction. Um, I can't remember it offhand. That's okay. But yeah, I, I agree. Once the, If you use it once, and that one thing is popular enough, that becomes the standard way of doing things from then on. Uh. 
I don't know. Science fiction, the only thing I can think of is, like, everyone uses the metric system in science fiction. Everyone right. uses Imperium. Because that's the future. Yes. <laughs> um, unless it's, like, aliens. Or, I mean, sometimes people make up, occasionally people make up uh, fantastic alien measurement systems, but that gets weird. Yeah, that's that's just a distraction. <laughs> I always thought it was weird, like, um, you know, the pilot episode of Farscape, where, like, you already know in the first episode that they use different units for everything. Mm -hmm. But somehow he's able to still get across what angle to get to pull off the slingshot maneuver. Uh, you just need to tell your story. You don't need to <laughs> Yeah, sometimes that just is what's going on. So anyway, let's move on to the next uh, email. We got one from Anthony Miles, and he said, he brought this up with you at Worldcon. I, this was, was a while ago. A very long time ago, <laughs> but uh, this is a language that has idiophones that are grammatically marked. Yep. That's really interesting. There aren't too many, and he points to another paper, and we'll include links to all of these, mm -hmm. uh, where Numbami and Jabem are two um, Austronesian languages. Both of them have marked um, idiophones, um, which is interesting. <clears throat> In one language, um, it looks like they're always marked. In another one, reduplicated ones don't take marking. Mm. Um, and the shape of the word determines which of two markers it gets. If they're short, they get um, one word. If they're longer, they take a different sort of marking. Um, so that's interesting. Uh, normally, idiophones aren't... I mean, they they may have unusual phonetics compared mm -hmm. to the rest of the language. Word shapes and uh, so forth might be different, um, but they're not usually marked out grammatically. Yeah. I mean, and things may happen to them to bring them into um, clauses if you want to. And that happens in some languages, not in others, but this is interesting where they're all marked. Yeah, you could have, like, um, an introductory verb or something. And I think there must have been something that brought it into discourse that got grammaticalized, because they say that um, the Wikipedia article at least says that it's apparently related to the word, uh, the, the, the idiophone marker is related to the word uh, andalua. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that correctly which is pathway or road. Which is a grammaticalization pathway for adverbs in general. Yeah, so, I don't know. You could have it, you know, have the idiophone and then wait. That makes sense in a sort of a, 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 a sort of a, a, a metaphorical logic way, is that the, the, a word for a path or a way gets, gets stuck onto something. So, that's interesting. Yep, and we've got links. We'll put those in the show notes. Mm -hmm. uh, we have a uh, oh, and we have a link to the the a uh, the blog of a linguist that works on that language too. So that's interesting too. Um, number three from Zelos. So he he he. Main thing I wanted to share from this email is he's talking about this. Site Linguafix? Have we mentioned this site before? I don't know. It's like, it's yet another one of these conlang wikis. Yep. Um, but th that's interesting. We could, uh, maybe we could find some conlangs to feature in there. 
So, um, and apparently there's like a conlang equivalent to um, Wiktionary in there. So that's that useful. Would be, that would be an interesting thing to to take a look at. There's hmm. also he's more high tech than I am, and he uses Evernote while listening to the podcast. Yeah, keep notes rather than writing things down on paper, which I'm still likely to tend to do. Yeah. How? So how is he? He says he listens while walking. How does he use Evernote while he's walking? You you can't type and walk. Um. He's on a he's on a mobile device. Evernote will run on your mobile device. Okay, but it's fine. Yeah, I can't. It would be tiny. Yes. <laughs> I actually I don't, don't type and walk at the same time. I walk off to the side of wherever I am and say whatever needs to be said, and then move on. There are quite a few languages listed here. I don't know. We can go through um, through sometime and look for good ones. Well, developed they are. Hmm, this looks all right. Okay, so that's an interesting little bit. Here's one. Oh, I forgot to copy the name of this person. For but, which one? Oh, yeah, Sife. This is what how he signed it. It's uh, so is is Sife Asad Al Satya, but um, that's probably pronounced safe. Safe. Yes. Anyway. Um. Anyway. So, uh, he was talking about. Okay, verbs marked with both Asian, a, agent and patient. He's got polypersonal poly, agreement. Polypersonal agreement, and he wants to know what to do with ditransitive verbs, like give, send. I don't think that tell necessarily works here, because tell would take, like, an object and then a clause, usually. But um, I understand. So what you want is whether you should mark Direct object and indirect object, and we have talked about Wait, this. Wait, no, 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 no. He's, there's, the, there's the rest of the question. He says, "I'm not aware of any natlangs that allow verb agreement with subject to direct object and indirect object. Are there any? Yes, there are. Yeah, Lee, everyone's favorite, Basque. <laughs> right. So you can't have all three marked on the verb. Sure. So that's it's um, not. Um, I don't and know. Basque how... is not an extremely polysynthetic language. Which is his second part of the question. Is it only assist in extremely polysynthetic languages like Yupik? No. If it, Basque has it, Basque is not, I don't know as much about Basque, but I don't think it's classified in that way, usually. Right. So I don't know <clears throat> how common, um, this three-way marking is, mm -hmm. um, across the world, especially if you're having, um, fusional systems, which the Basque case is, effectively. Um, but polypersonal agreement, where both subject and object are marked, is actually pretty common. In fact, um, um, American and European conlangers' habits of having verbs marked only for the subject is probably typologically unusual. Um, I would want to go look at walls again to verify this, but polypersonal agreement for the subject and direct object is very common. Mm -hmm. um, and what can also happen in uh, with ditransitive verbs uh, is that in a in a polypersonal agreement language is you just pick one of the arguments which becomes core, so that you will always mark the subject and the direct object, or just as often to happen, you will mark the subject and the indirect object on the verb, and the direct object floats outside the verb. Mm -hmm. So agreement for the non-subject part in a tri in a ditransitive verb in a polypersonal agreement language might either be always with the human or always with the the direct object. 
So mm. there's a there's a choice to be had there. Uh, what was the other thing I was going to say? Or you might have just different verbs which select which element, the direct object or the indirect object, is most salient, um, and that's what gets marked on the verb. So in a single language, you might have multiple constructions. Okay. Um, for which one is core, and that and that again, like I said, is related to how important is the thing you're giving more important than the person you're giving to, and that will determine the verb choice. Right. Yeah. That. So you actually have several different choices as to how to handle di- ditransitive verbs uh, in a polypersonal agreement system. It's not necessarily, you know, it's not necessarily mark the direct object or mark indirect and direct object, you can have these other systems where you mark the indirect object and not the direct object or have these different um, systems like you were talking about. Right. So So uh, think about, um, this isn't exactly the same because there's not the same focusing situation, but the difference between give and donate. Give has multiple constructions available in English. I gave the book to him versus I gave him the book. Um, but donate... You can't say, I donated him a book. That just doesn't sound right. Or it doesn't to me. Mm. George, does that work for you in your version of English? It seems marginal, but I think I could do it. Okay. But obviously, you know, there are these differences. Yeah. I donated a book to him or to an organization is a little more natural. So, um, so here's right. So the verb for grant which has sort of an exalted sound, right? Somebody powerful is giving you something. For that one, can you say, I granted a book to him? I granted a, I granted permission to him? I granted him permission? Which one sounds better? To me, it sounds like that one is much more concerned with the person receiving. Um, mm, I, I granted him permission. I granted him. I granted permission to him. Um, I, I, I granted him permission is better to me. Yeah, right. So that's the point, is different verbs uh, will have different overtones and will focus on different elements. Right. And that's true whether you're using polypersonal agreement or not. Uh-huh. So that's, that's a good point. I think that's um, something that people, for a lot of these kinds of questions, when you're asking do languages do it, well, very often the when you're asking those questions and you think of just a couple of options, often if you do a little bit of research, you'll find there's actually more options than you thought of. Yes. <laughs> not, not just with this, uh, with polypersonal agreement stuff, but with all kinds of different linguistic, uh, choices. Like if you start looking into grammatical number, if you're only familiar with, you know, systems that have singular and plural, and then suddenly you find out there's dual and trial and pockle and all sorts of different distinctions you can make. Um, yeah. Those often you, you end up with a lot more choices than you expected. And, and just to keep riffing on to give, um, there are some languages, this isn't hugely common, but it does happen where you have separate words entirely for give depending on who the recipient is. Is it a first-person recipient, a second-person recipient, or a third-person? And you might have a separate one for first-person recipient versus second and third, or you might have one for all three. Oh, now that's an interesting thing. Right. So, again, this isn't hugely common, but it does happen in some natural language. And sometimes the verb forms are obviously related in some way, um, and other times they're completely suppletive. There's completely different stems. That's a new one for me that I've I've heard. Um, I... 
I'm more used to thinking of to give and thinking of semantic divisions of give, such as to give a gift versus to give something else, things like that. But sure. uh, that's that's um, sort of lexical divisions that everybody should be thinking about anyway. All right. So and for real fun, we're not we don't not going to discuss it here, but just look up how Japanese copes with verbs of giving. Okay. Yeah. Um, I didn't copy the names on these ones, uh, but uh, I will read. There's a couple. Uh, I just this this guy says, "Sorry for disturbing you." That's a funny thing to say in an email. But I just discovered Conlanger, and I started to wonder: Is there a way of promoting a language that I have constructed in order to make people know something about it? Now, I already replied to this person recommending that they go to. The various community sites. Yep. There's the, the, the Facebook groups. There's the various forums. There's there's uh, the mailing list, the Conlang mailing list. There's and, a subreddit on Reddit. Yeah. we can, And uh, I can collect some links and put those into the show notes for you. But that's a great way. There's So there you can share just little snippets of what you're working on and have people comment on them. That's that's a great thing to do when you're developing a language. Uh, and you can also, once you want to like put together something more formal and, and present, try to present a full language, then, uh, I would suggest, uh, making, making like your own site or making up a, a nice PDF and hosting that somewhere and then link, link to, link to it on some of those community sites. Cause right. that's where, a lot of the discussion of conlanging goes. Yeah. On a lot of these communities, there are discussions about, you know, how do you say volcano, which is relevant for the news lately, <laughs> um, or whatever. And that's a better way. If you are regularly engaged with the community, people are going to be more happy to hear what you have to say, rather than a link to a gigantic PDF saying, here's my language which for most people is exhausting. And the only time I want to see a giant PDF of an entire language, usually, is, <clears throat> excuse me, when I'm looking for comments to discuss on the show. Yeah. I mean... I mean, you can it's, do that. That's important. It's, it's, but as a promotional tool, that's a little bit exhausting. Being engaged with people, I think, is a better way to get the word out about your language. Yeah, I know. I, 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 that's just a suggestion of, you know, where you can put that when you do do it. Because a lot of people do want to put those big grammars out there. Sure, and absolutely uh, they should, but that's not a great way to advertise but, the language. But your but your general <coughs> sort of getting it into the zeitgeist, yeah, is participate in the communities. I don't do that as much as I should. Uh I saw your post on the Facebook group, William, of asking about people's uh words for volcano. I think I think I like yours. What it's like it's translates something like mountain that is on fire or yep. something, right? <laughs> I don't think that's a particularly novel way of constructing that concept, though. No, I don't think so. Like a fire, fire mountain, or something like that is right. pretty common. But I, I don't know. I, just the way that you particularly put it together, I guess, part of the grammar of the language. Yeah. This is a short one. Uh, hello, I love what you're doing with this show. I've listened to every show. I just have a question. I remember a while back, William mentioned a language with only 12 verbs, and I was very curious about it. What language is that, and is there any information or grammar on it? So, 
I misreported how many verbs the language has by an order of magnitude. There are not 12 oh. verbs, there are about 120, which is still pretty darn small. Oh, okay. This was, this was some Papua New Guinea language. Right? This, yes, uh, Kobon. Kobon? Okay. K-O-B-O-N. Let me verify that. I could be misremembering the name. Um, I like it because one of the special verbs is to, um, butcher a cassowary. Right. Yes, Kobon. Uh, pronounced... Can you put oh. that into the document? Then sure. Sure enough. Um, I think there are some... No. There might be other information available online. I don't know. Um, there is the, uh, of course, the Wikipedia article about which um, they have stuff. Um, I'll do some digging. I thought that I saw um, online data elsewhere about this language. Um, another one that we did is we did a show on Ngala, which is a language of Australia, which has a small number of um, verb roots. But in both the situation of Kobon and Nala, what they do is they use noun-verb phrases for lots of meanings that we would consider verbs in English. Mm -hmm. So, I always feel a little weird saying that the language only has X number of verbs. It only has 120 or so morphologically marked verbs, but verbal concepts are easily expressed by combining the small number of morphologically marked verbs with nouns for idiomatic senses. Mm -hmm. um, so it's not hugely exotic, really. It just seems that way. Mm. Okay. And so. the last... Hmm? Go ahead. And the last email that we had uh, is just... So, he says, I hope you might be able to offer some, some advice. I'm intrigued by language and I'm fascinated by... I'd also like to be able to do some language construction of my own, but I have a problem of not knowing basic elements of language very well. I can write reasonably well, mostly instinctually. I'm familiar with basic English grammar, da, 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 just the rules of base, of decent writing, which uh, we'll, we're going to get to a little bit. But I listened to some of your podcasts. I'm distraught by the fact that I don't know what things are. And basically he's asking for, he says, do you have any recommended books or websites that you feel are fundamental and should be on the shelf of anyone interested in language and especially constructed language. Okay. Uh, mm -hmm. So, the language construction kit. Yes, that's, that's a very good um, Mark Rosenfelder's, that's great. Um, he has a print version, which is much expanded, which he self-publishes, so it's cheap. I recommend it highly. I think it's a great um, overview of some of the possibilities in language. Um, mm -hmm. For language construction in general, um, after you've read the language construction kit, which will introduce to you some of this terminology, you are much better off looking at the grammars and dictionaries of human languages. Right. Um, and ones that are quite different from English. So avoid other European languages. Um, I don't know, except maybe Hungarian and Basque, which are pretty differently organized. And Finnish. Um, so further afield, we'll give you a much better idea of the possibilities available to you, and especially for science fiction and fantasy writers, I recommend that you spend just as much time looking at a good foreign language dictionary um, as you do looking at the grammar. <clears throat> um, for science fiction and fantasy, you want to think about your different cultures and how that's going to play in the vocabulary of the language. 
right? There's nothing intrinsically, uh, there's nothing in the air or the dirt um, or the genes of people from Australia that makes them favor ergative languages. That's just a history. What's much more interesting is the vocabulary they use, which is a result of living there for hundred, uh, tens of thousands of years and adjusting to, you know, technologies and the wildlife and all of that. Vocabulary is fundamental. Right. To capturing the worldview of a people more so than any particular grammatical construction. That's absolutely true. People try to pull all sorts of, you know, ideas about generalizations about culture from grammar, but it's a very, very small part of what's going on. And what, what ends up, the way that languages adapt to new circumstances is much more so in terms of the lexicon, in terms of the words. Yes. Because... Words are easy to coin and easy to borrow. Uh, not that you can't borrow grammar and you can't create grammatical constructions, because that does absolutely happen. But words sort of come in a lot faster and develop in 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 uh, interesting ways, and they're you know carrying this the semantic meanings. Um, one thing that sort of the LCK and also if you uh, even like uh, a beginning linguistics textbook would sort of also tell you is a little bit about um, some of what's in this email is you're talking about uh, try not to end sentences with prepositions, avoid passive voice. Uh, those are, those are, and you said those are style rules. Those are absolutely just stylistic opinions. They're not even necessarily consistently used by the people who promote them uh, and sort of understanding, you know, that that's, that's a, a longer process to learn about, but the understanding the difference between those sorts of prescriptive uh, rules that English teachers teach you and what linguists actually consider to be quote unquote grammar is another thing. Right. Right. So, since you have gone to the trouble to listen to the Conlangery podcast and you are interested in creating better languages, this is a little door into linguistics, real linguistics. And in one of the things you mention as one of the rules of decent writing is avoiding the passive voice. That rule is a fantasy. Delusional nonsense. BS. <laughs> invented by some grumpy school marm or Don somewhere that has nothing whatsoever at all to do with how the passive works in English. I will include links where you can read about why there's nothing at all wrong, zero wrong, with the passive voice. And in fact, you need to use the passive voice to speak coherently and to emphasize the things that really matter. So I'm not going to go into that rant here. Jeff Pullum rants better than I do, so we'll just include a link to what he has to say. But there is no reason at all to avoid the passive voice. When you hear English teachers tell you, it's because they're part of a cult and don't know it. <laughs> And they inculcate all of these poor, defenseless children into a cult that has no meaning at all. Yes. Yes. That's, uh, it's just, um, I don't know. That's just an entirely different subject that's almost sort of beyond the, what's, what this podcast is about. But it's good to have a review of it once in a while. Yes. So that was all of the emails that I prepared for this installment of our mailbag. 
And uh, those all come to conlangery at gmail.com. So if you want to um, send us more feedback, you can send that to us. Uh, it's not guaranteed that they'll be on the show or that they'll be on the show in any kind of time, timely manner. I do read all of them. I occasionally do reply to them. Uh, but, uh, you know, and so you can have some uh, some contact with us that way. And, uh, William, did you have any other sort of announcements or anything? Yes, about the time this episode go, goes live, a new and improved version of the Conlanger's Thesaurus will be available on Fiat Lingua. Um, the most recent version has about 25 semantic maps. The new one has about 75 semantic maps, and they're all much larger. Um, for these polysemy semantic maps, so it will be new and improved and giant, and I'll still be able to update it regularly at Fiat, Fiat Lingua, so... That's, that's all I have to say about that. Yes, and the, the semantic uh, maps are the best thing about the conlangers. It really is. That, that really is. Uh, all right. And um, with that, I'm just going to say happy conlanging. Thank you for listening to Conlangery. You can find our archives and show notes at conlangery.com. You can send questions, comments, or topic or featured language suggestions to conlangery at gmail.com. To submit a conlang or natlang greeting for the top of the show, see our contribute page for details. Web space for conlangery is provided by the Language Creation Society, and our theme music is by Null Device.